This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to South China Sea Currents, our weekly podcast on what's happening in the South China Sea. I'm joined as ever by our South China Sea reporter Drake Long, who's talking about what he's been writing on this week for RFA and Banar News. So Drake, how are you doing? Another week in paradise in Telework City? Yep. I mean, I guess you could say that. Got some storm weather coming in this weekend, so I'm hunkering down for that. Okay. Hopefully everything will be safe and sound. Now, this week, China's military has been very busy. In recent days, there have military exercises at sea in several locations, including South China Sea, where the PLA rocket force launched ballistic missiles. Among the projectiles, reportedly, was a DF-21D, which China-watching nerds everywhere will know is often called a carrier killer. A not-so-subtle message, perhaps, to the U.S. Navy, which this summer has sailed on occasion not just one but two aircraft carriers through the South China Sea. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., on the same day as the missile launches, the Trump administration announced sanctions on 24 Chinese companies or subsidiaries it said were involved in China's spate of island building in the South China Sea between 2013 and 2017. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo described this as an effort to stop China using its state-owned enterprises for, quote, an expansionist agenda. So it seems like we're seeing an escalation on both sides, China through its military exercises and the U.S. with targeted sanctions. Turning to you, Drake, do you we have any inkling that the U.S. was going to take this step with the sanctions? Yeah, so as early as last month, in early July, actually, Assistant Secretary of State David Stilwell said that they were considering sanctions on Chinese companies over the South China Sea issue, and even named a couple of the companies that are on this list by name. So clearly this has been planned for a while, and a lot of people even brought up the possibility years ago when the dredging campaign for which these companies were sanctioned was still underway. Okay, I remember at the time there was quite a bit of focus on the environmental destruction that was caused by that. So what what were the things that Mike Pompeo outlined as being, you know, the justification for this action? Well, one, like you said, the environmental devastation. So for example, one company that's sanctioned is the China Communications Construction Company, or maybe it's China Construction Communications Company. I'm not quite sure. It's CCCC. It was actually responsible for dredging up the sand and creating those artificial islands that we now know in the South China Sea as Fiery Cross Reef, Subi Reef, Mischief Reef, Woody Island. So it had a hand in creating China's artificial islands there, and in the process completely destroyed the natural reefs in those locations. And the damage was quite extensive. So that was one reason. A second reason was China's militarization of these features after building on top of them which we've documented you know, quite a bit at Radio Free Asia. We've caught fighter jets, we've caught warships sailing into them, despite a pledge back in 2015 by China that they would not militarize these features. It happened, and they wouldn't be able to station military assets at these little islands if they hadn't built them up in the first place with the help of these companies on this list. So how did China respond to the U.S. levying these sanctions and making these, these very strong allegations against China? So they said that the companies that operate in the South China Sea are doing everything lawfully. They are doing everything within the bounds of what is appropriate, and they are operating within China's sovereign territory. So because it's their companies and it's in their territory, which let's be clear is a little disputed, they should not be subject to sanctions. They, they were quite unhappy about it. 
even though many people would point out that the targeted sanctions that we're talking about are things like export restrictions and visa restrictions for just a few Chinese state-owned enterprises. And it doesn't really amount to a whole lot of damage to those companies anyway. But nonetheless, Beijing was quite unhappy. So the U.S. has only taken this action, you know, about three years after China actually finished doing all the dredging and reclamation work. So it's kind of curious from that perspective that they're taking this action now. What's your best guess about why the U.S. is doing it now? If you look at the comments by Stillwell from a month ago, he named a couple other companies that were involved in the South China Sea, like Sinuk, the China National Offshore Oil Corporation that did not end up on the list. So they clearly deliberately picked these companies, CCCC, and there's another one called China Electronic Telecommunications Company, CETC. What's notable is that those were the ones directly responsible for building the artificial islands, for dredging, for setting up the communications infrastructure in the South China Sea for China's outposts. But they're also huge contractors on the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think that's probably why they were singled out. And I think that's also probably why it took this long to kind of figure out, you know, uh, what should we be doing with these companies? Should we be sanctioning them over the South China Sea? And I think the skepticism that Washington is paying towards the Belt and Road Initiative was the impetus to finally go through with these sanctions. That's also why I think this is probably not the end-all be-all. I think there's probably going to be larger scale effort to try to hurt these companies, uh, go after their revenue, get some multilateral support, get other countries to sanction them, what have you. So it's a broader swipe at Chinese state-owned enterprises that are involved in building infrastructure and stuff across the globe at the moment. But the U.S. could have taken stiffer action against these companies, right? Yeah. So one thing I saw that was interesting was that these are sanctions in a loose term, basically, because export restrictions and visa restrictions on individuals within companies don't really amount to a whole lot, especially when they're state-owned enterprises like this. I mean, CCCC is the Belt and Road infrastructure conglomerate. It builds infrastructure all over the world. It has massive revenue streams. And I'm pretty sure it's on Forbes' a list of 100 biggest companies now. So it's huge. And its trade with U.S. products, the products that it imports, amounts to about $5 million U.S. dollars a year which is a pittance. It's nothing. Some other companies that are sanctioned, some subsidiaries don't import anything from the USA, hardly at all. So these do not have a huge effect in actuality. But by naming these companies, I think it's very clear that symbolically, the administration is calling them out and saying, you know, we're paying greater scrutiny to these companies. We want to take further action. And one senior administration official even called CCCC the Huawei of infrastructure drawing a direct parallel between it and Huawei, which we've seen massive global backlash to lately. So I think this is, like I said, the first step in a broader strategy to try to unhook CCCC and these other BRI companies just out of different countries. That's a very interesting perspective on this action by the US government. You're listening to South China Sea Currents. So Drake, changing topic a bit. Tell me about China's military drills. It's exercising in three seas at once, if I understand correctly. Yep, three seas at once. There are four or five total exercises, depending on how you count, occurring simultaneously, or they did occur simultaneously this week. You have some exercises in the north near Bohai Bay in the Yellow Sea, and you had one very, very interesting exercise in the South China Sea, just northeast of China's occupied features in the Parasol Islands. We saw an exercise there in July, I believe July 1st or the 5th. This latest exercise, though, 
involved a missile test. They launched missiles from two different locations on the Chinese mainland into an area of the South China Sea between Woody Island, which is occupied by China, and Pratis Island, which is occupied by Taiwan. So what do you think was the message with this missile test? With the missile test, I'm just going to quote what uh, Ankit Panda, who's a Stanton senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, uh, he said the whole point is to demonstrate that China can launch missiles and hit moving targets in the open ocean. The whole point with a carrier killer missile like the DF-21D is to prove that you can hit an aircraft carrier while it's moving. Having said that, there's a couple things we don't really know. We don't know if the test actually involved a moving target or if it was just a random spot in the ocean that was totally stationary and the missiles just had to get you know close enough to call it a day. So I would say this is definitely a message sent at the U.S. Navy, which has done a lot of freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea as of late. And we've seen aircraft carriers drill there more frequently as well. I mean, is it too early to say whether this is strategically significant? I mean, I, I recall over the people have been talking about this carrier killer missile for about a decade now. But this is the first time I think we've heard of a, a test, at least on the sea of this missile. Yeah, it is the first known test of them firing that missile into the sea. They've tested on land before, but they've never actually tested firing it into the ocean, which is actually kind of difficult to pull off and quite provocative when you think about it. I mean, you have to cordon off a whole section of the ocean, which they did. No ships can pass in there. You have to close the airspace. And when you do that, you're actually opening it up to easier surveillance by other countries because it's not that hard to fly a plane nearby which the U.S. apparently did, and just gather data about the test while it's happening. So China set all this up. They did the test. First time they've done it, as far as I know. And they clearly want to show off their capability to launch these missiles from far out in the Chinese mainland and hit something right next to its coastline. I think that kind of shows the depth that China has if there was some type of conflict to break out with an enemy navy. I mean, I guess the big one that they're thinking about is the U.S. Navy, where or the U.S. has ships, the U.S. has airplanes stationed in different parts of the Pacific, but China has its entire landmass to hide missiles, to hide assets, to hide these sorts of things. And they're saying, we can use these things, which you will never be able to find because they're so far in our territory, and we can hit things right out in the open ocean. Very interesting. Indeed. So is the U.S. Navy going to be thinking twice about sending its aircraft carriers through the South China Sea? No, probably not. Uh, there's a statement right after that, a spokesperson for the U.S. Navy simply said, you know, we have 38 ships in the Pacific, like right now. We're, we're not going to pack up and go away just because China may have demonstrated that they can hit a moving target. There's still some info that we don't know. I do want to reiterate, we do not actually know if they were trying to hit a moving target or if it was even successful. They may have missed. We wouldn't necessarily know if it did or not, at least not for quite a while. Right. So going back to the drills across these three seas at once, what do you think prompted this flurry of action by the Chinese? It's very easy to say that this is a response to RIMPAC, the Rim of the Pacific exercises that the U.S. and many other countries are currently doing in Hawaii. It's easy to say this could be a response to some provocations across the Taiwan Strait, U.S. freedom of navigation exercises, or U.S. freedom of overflight exercises that they've done over the South China Sea. But all of this had to get planned so far in advance that I don't think we can say it's because of any external event. I think China's been planning it for a while. And we've had rumors, this is exercise season, we've had rumors that China was going to exercise something in August. I just don't think people expected a missile exercise. 
So with these exercises all up and down the Chinese coast, we can say they were probably planning to do it for a long time. It doesn't have anything to do with any external action by the US or Taiwan or Japan or what have you. But maybe they added some details. Maybe they added this missile test at the last minute because they want to show we can hit moving targets. Maybe they added an extra drill in the uh, Yellow Sea where we got to see a submarine launch cruise missile in action, in motion. So it, it's tough to say. I would say that they probably planned this ahead a long time ago, and maybe they updated it as different things happened around them. Now, I know that you're particularly interested in the China Ministry of Defense saying that there are also exercises planned in the Spratly Islands, right? Yeah, this went somewhat under the radar. I didn't see too many other people reporting it, but there is a Ministry of Defense statement. Um, I believe it was by the PLA, uh, the People's Liberation Army Southern Theater Command, that said, we are doing exercises in these areas. And he said, you know, the Yellow Sea, we're doing exercises there, which I know about. We're doing exercises in the Parasol Islands, which I know about. And we're also exercising in Nansha, which is the Chinese term for the Spratly Islands, which is the vast archipelago of rocks and reefs in the southern half of the South China Sea. That was significant to me. So I, I reported that in our piece. I don't know if it got a whole lot of traction. But if they're planning an exercise in the Spratly Islands, I don't know that they've ever done that before. And it's also not clear if they're planning it or it's already underway. It definitely stuck out to me. So why is it a, a bigger deal in your mind that China might be doing drills in the Spratleys as opposed to around the Paracels, which they've been doing this week? So the Paracels, well, they've exercised there before and they've stationed military assets there quite often. We catch them on satellite every so often. The Paracels is entirely occupied by China. It's disputed between Vietnam, China, and Taiwan, but it's completely occupied by China, so they can exercise a good deal of control over that little area. But the Spratly Islands, every claimant in the South China Sea has claims to the Spratly Islands in some manner. So if you do an exercise there, you're not just angering Vietnam, Taiwan, the Philippines, the usual suspects, but you're potentially angering Malaysia, Brunei, you know, other neighboring countries like Indonesia, possibly Singapore, who all regularly move through that area without problem. So it would be very provocative to do an exercise in the Spratly Islands. China does have major outposts there. You know, Fiery Crest Reef, Subi Reef, and Mischief Reef are huge military bases. But to do an exercise involving them, that just seems like you're going to anger more people in the neighborhood. So it's very provocative, very interesting if they actually went through with it. Have you been able to see much from the air about the military exercises and the plans for the, these military exercises in the Spratlys using satellite imagery? Yeah, so that's interesting. There have been more warships than normal, I think, in Mischief Reef, and I've spotted a few at Fiery Cross Reef. Now, when I say more warships than normal, you know, it just could mean that I haven't necessarily caught them before, or I've only been looking at satellite imagery for a couple of years, so maybe they had more stationed prior to that. But I do notice a few more warships moving through the area. Usually they just stop by and then they move on to a new area. But then I will catch a different warship there the next day. On top of that, I believe we put it in our article on the military drills. But on Subi Reef, I found this strange convoy of trucks and cars, 22 of them actually, that was driving all along the airstrip. Now, they're cars. It's not that unusual to see vehicles at these sites, but all of them lined up in a row like that, that stuck out to me. That could be people simply moving around to prep for an exercise. You know, it could just be something totally benign. Um, they could be a construction crew of some sort. But there's a lot of activity that I can't quite put my finger on that could point to an imminent exercise or it could point to something, you know, a little bit more anodyne. So I guess you're, you're going to be keeping a close eye on that in the coming week. Oh, definitely. 
and this might seem like a bit of a come down after discussing missile strikes and all these all this military activity <laughs> but this week there was china won a spot on the international tribune on the law of the sea one of its ambassadors was elected as a judge is that significant uh it depends on who you talk to so let's be clear the current u.s administration is greatly concerned about china dominating certain united nations affiliated agencies you know international organizations like the international tribunal for the law of the sea and last week david stilwell even said i am concerned about china's candidate potentially winning his election to the international tribunal on the law of the sea China obviously has a complicated relationship with the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. People would argue they violate it constantly. Um, they've never acknowledged the 2016 Permanent Court of Arbitration Award that set a pretty important precedent for what's legal and what's not legal to claim in the South China Sea. So there are reasons to be concerned about a China judge on the 21-member panel that comprises that tribunal. But, I mean, if you look into it just a little bit more, it's a 21-member panel. One judge can't do a whole lot. And China has actually always had a member on the panel since the uh, International Tribunal called ITLOS was set up back in the 90s. So how significant is this? I actually think it's probably not that significant. And I think it's worth noting that even though the U.S. complained about a Chinese judge potentially winning his election last month, he was actually running unopposed. There was nothing the U.S. could do to stop that from happening. And on top of that, the U.S. has not ratified the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, so we don't get a vote at Ilos's elections, and we can't put forth members ourselves. So if we don't put forth members ourselves, and no one else in Asia puts forward a member for that seat, China's candidate is going to win regardless. There's nothing you can do. And on top of that, the most important case concerning the South China Sea, which is what people would be concerned about when you talk about international law and the Law of the Sea and China, that case was determined not by ITLOS, but by the Permanent Court of Arbitration over in The Hague. Totally separate court. So, you know, the most landmark case was not even handled by ITLOS. So make of that what you will. I would say that it's not as significant as some people are making it out to be. I think that it points to the constant trend of China getting its candidates into these UN agencies and the US not really having a plan to stop it or not really having any alternative to back. It's very different from other cases where we've seen the U.S. intervene in these elections, like in the World Intellectual Property Organization. I don't think it's very comparable. Okay, so it seems like the U.S. can't really do a whole lot about China getting this judgeship at Hitloss. Drake, thank you for walking us through that and the significance of diplomatic coup for China and talking about the drills in the South China Sea and elsewhere and the U.S. sanctions. You can read Drake's previous articles on these and other subjects about the South China Sea at rfa.org and bananews.org. You can also catch up on our previous podcasts there and also on Spotify and iTunes if you search for South China Sea Currents. If you've got any questions or feedback, please email us on South China Sea, that's all one word, at rfa.org, or follow Drake on Twitter. His handle is drm underscore long. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Drake Long. Thank you for listening and please join us again.